This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. For me, the living history means something. That's why today is so important. You've got to get these stories on tape. You've got to get this area because, you know, these types of crimes are going away. People like to say there's organized crime and they like to say they understand how things happen. They have no idea the reality. They really don't. So these stories to me are a living history. This type of thing for me needs to be in the Smithsonian. Over the past several weeks, we have been retracing Billy Burt's footsteps on the Jackson farm, trying to find the spots he had marked with X's on a map drawn while he was in prison and hidden for Stoney to find later. We had also been searching for the unidentified woman Burton Davis killed and supposedly buried near Otis Reedling's shallow grave on the banks of the Mulberry River. Stoney is dead set on finding that woman for one reason. It is my descendants. I don't want them thinking that the blood that runs through their veins comes from a a cold-blooded, murderer, torture, sadistic son of a bitch. The, the truth is bad enough. Who my father was, who he chose to be, and what he done is bad enough. It don't need Charles Manson or Ted Bundy throwed in with it. So, that's it. I've got to live what he did. It's my hope and prayer that my grandchildren don't have to live with what he didn't do because I've had to. And I tell you, it's been tough. Stoney is absolutely certain his father did not commit the Fleming murder and was framed by Davis with the help of Jim West in an elaborate plan to get Burt behind prison bars for the rest of his life. His father maintained his innocence of this particular crime until the day he died. But after everything that Burt had been through in his time on death row, the near executions, losing an eye in a knife attack, and ultimately finding his own redemption during a secret baptism orchestrated by one of the very men that helped put him in prison, hadn't this been enough for Stoney too? Why keep pursuing this? His father's dead. What's going to change? But it seems, while these things provided some sort of salvation for Billy Burt, Stoney's obsession with clearing his father of the Fleming murder might be the only thing that gives him closure. My daddy pretty well confessed every damn sin he done. And even the ones he didn't, he would not elaborate on. He just left it alone. I asked Stoney what he would say to Davis if he could have five minutes to sit and talk with him about this. I would talk to him from the heart, Sean. I can't tell you what would come out of me, but it would come from the heart and from the hip. And I would talk to him just like you right now. And I would try to, in that five minutes, I would try to get it through to him, what it would mean to his soul and his, for lack of a better word, his future, whatever eternity may be, if he would come clean and just tell the whole truth and take that one crime, the Flemings, off my dad's shoulders and put it on his shoulders because unless he confesses to his sin, he has no hope for redemption. But I would give I swear, as much as I know my job's not over on this earth and as much as my babies need me, my son, my wife, my grandchildren, I would give 
I don't know. I have to negotiate it, but I would give part of my life if he would come clean. For now, we have to find evidence to back up Stoney's claims that his father wasn't a part of the murder in Wren's. So far, with the exception of Stoney finding a shotgun buried nearly a half century ago by his father, we've come up empty-handed. We realized that if we wanted to find anything, we needed to take more drastic measures. Enter the cadaver dogs. My name is Tracy Sargent. A lot of folks call me Trace. I'm known as a canine search and rescue expert. I specialize in finding missing persons, both dead and alive. Uh, my dogs have been working since they were about 10 months old, and they have found remains from a few hours old up to about 350 years old. The dogs themselves are what we call human remains detection dogs. A lot of people know them as cadaver dogs, but they do so much more than that. When we say human remains, it could be from a full-size body down to skeletal remains and everything in between, including body fluids. Stoney chimes in on the information this expert in her field provided. I just don't believe a cadaver, a dead, or what they call it, dog, can find something dead 50 years. I just don't believe it. I think it's impossible. If she said she knows, so I believe her. Did she say she knows the kid? Then I believe her. It's interesting that these dogs. Um, Drug dealers have been trying to hide scent from drug dogs for many, many years. And it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to hide scent from dogs. So when we have resources like this, especially in a large area like this, they, they can really narrow it down for us, even in these cold cases that are 30, 40, 50 years old. On a hot July day, we met Tracy and her dogs Chance and Draco at the old Jackson farm. Stoney's son, Stone, had worked for days with the landowner to clear a wide path with a tractor so that we could easily traverse the area along the riverbank, which had been covered in thick undergrowth and was nearly impassable. We were joined by law officials from Barrow County and retired Sheriff Joe Robinson. Tracy gave us a rundown on what to expect from the cadaver dogs. Dogs do not find bombs, drugs, or people. They find scent. So we have to work and look at the topography the age, the size, all of these different factors, the weather, and how we can put scent in our favor so the dogs can respond to it. Because unfortunately, this time of year is absolutely the worst scent conditions for anything. Um, it has happened, but it's rare that we go and search and a few minutes later, we find something. That's kind of Hollywood. Draco, a beautiful jet-black German Shepherd, hopped out of Tracy's SUV and immediately began canvassing the area. Every few feet, he would stop and lower his head to get a closer smell of something, and would quickly move on in an almost erratic pattern, crisscrossing back and forth over the land. Tracy let Draco acclimate himself for a few minutes, and then led him in the direction of the river, walking along the freshly cleared path. I'm looking what we call a COB, a change of behavior. Yes, their trained alert or indication is a sit, but more importantly for me is what is their natural change of behavior that I've seen in these dogs over the years. 
So based upon their natural change of behavior, that's an important thing for me to look for and to, to observe. Our group gave Tracy and Draco space and waited anxiously off to the side. Stoney paced nervously and chain-smoked cigarettes. Would the dogs actually find something? Or have we been simply wasting our time out here? Whether it be a body or bank money or jewelry, guns, whatever they're getting rid of, the rule of thumb was 20 to 30 foot off the existing bank. Unless they hit clay within three foot, they'd have to go four foot deep. If they hit clay, a lot of times they've moved to right to within five foot of the river bank where you wouldn't. If you did hit clay, you could throw it in the river and cover your tracks with sand, or else you'd have taught all that clay, you see. And within minutes, Draco's behavior changed. He paced much more quickly across the land, jumping in and out of the tall weeds off the side of the path, and then stopped suddenly and raised his nose toward the trees, taking in many short, rapid sniffs. We barely made a sound as we watched. And then, Draco sat down and looked directly into Tracy's eyes, staring intently at her. Tracy led Draco out of the area to sort of recalibrate, and he immediately headed back to the same spot and again sat, which was a sign that he had found something. So much for this only happening in Hollywood. Draco was led back to the SUV, and Chance was brought out. If Chance went to the same spot and sat as well, it would almost certainly indicate we had found something. And that's exactly what happened. Where you need me, Shelly? Just right here. So I just wanted to explain what the dogs are doing and what they're telling us here. Again, they tell us two things, where something is and where something isn't. When we started Draco over in that area, what I saw is that they told me there was no scent in that area over here. But when they got to this tree right here, and that big one, this one right here. This little small sapling? Yes. And then the big one right there. And this area right here, they had a change of behavior. Both dogs did. Draco's is when he gets to scent, he'll stop, stand, and stare at me. He did that several times. And I worked him out into what we call a negative area and then brought him in in a different direction just to see if the scent, he would be able to pick it up in a different way or stronger or weaker. Every time I brought him into this area, he had a change of behavior. His was obvious in that he, did you see how his head was raising up and he was smelling the air? The reason for that is because vegetation is like sponge, like sponges. So if you think about different fluids, they're absorbed into plant life and that scent actually comes out of the leaves and the plant life itself. The dogs will typically indicate to trees and vegetation because the scent is stronger because it's been absorbed into the plant life. So what I can tell you is that in that area, negative. In that area, negative. In this area, there is a change of behavior and positive response for the dogs in this area. Tracy used her knowledge to give us a search area of roughly 30 feet by 50 feet that, in her words, deserved further exploration. But before we could even put a shovel in the ground, Tracy, once again with Draco, 
began searching further on down the riverbank toward the second X on the map. And this is when something astounding happened. A few days before we arrived with the dogs, when Stoney's son, Stone, had been clearing out the brush with a tractor, he heard a very defined whistle, as if someone was trying to get his attention. He cut the tractor's engine off and listened intently. Again, he heard a whistle. He looked around, and he was alone. Stone called his father to see if he was on the Jackson Farm property, but he was back at the distillery, miles away, making whiskey. It spooked Stone enough that he quit for the day and left. And as we walked along the riverbank, Draco, and then Chance, once again, sat down. And Stone's face turned white, as if he'd seen a ghost. Stone, where were you at? Is that why you started? Where were you at when you heard the whistle? Pinpointing. I was on the scene sitting right here. Right here. Yeah. And, and you stopped clearing because of that. Tell, tell, now tell it what happened. What you told me the next morning. Yes, sir. When I was running it, the first time I thought listen I heard, this, listen this. I thought I heard a loud whistle. So I looked around, make sure no one was around me. You sat right here. On the so seat. I stopped. That's when I called you, asked where you was. I hung up the phone, and that's when I heard that loud whistle. And it sounded like it was coming from right there behind that dune. And that's when I took the machine back out here to the front. Scared. Spooked. And didn't tell me the next morning, did you? Yeah, pretty much. Do the whistle. First whistle, second whistle. First whistle was like a... I can't really do it good, but like trying to get my attention. That's my daddy. Do the second one. And then whistle. the second one was like a slower... It was like... Okay. And once again, where were you at? Is that why you stopped here? Clear. That's why I didn't clear no more. Okay. So you hear that, man? When you heard the whistle, he was right here. That's why he didn't clear anymore. He got out of here. Did him the next morning. And the whistle he does is my daddy's whistle. Stone making this claim was out of the ordinary. I've gotten to know him fairly well over the past year and a half, and there's no showmanship in him like Stoney has. He's quiet, reserved. Both dogs had sat on the exact spot that Stone had parked the tractor and turned off the engine after hearing several ghostly whistles. Tracy had no idea of this until after the fact. Is there something to this? I don't know, but it's certainly intriguing given that we are searching for potential murder victims of Billy Burt. And while we had Tracy and her cadaver dogs with us, we headed to the spot where Otis Reedling had been buried to see if we might be able to locate Davis's mistress as well. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As we arrive at the second location, Stoney begins to put the charm on a bit and makes drinks for everyone out of a cooler in the back of his truck. Man, when you get my age, you stay prepared, yeah, you especially when to... pretty women around. <laughs> well, thank you. Now, stir it up All right. and tell me how you like the concoction, and I'll tell you what you're going to do if you drink two of them. 
I'm gonna be in the river. Now, I'm harmless. <laughs> I, got, I got a pretty St. Gal in town, been married 43 years, and I will fast days, but no slow dancing. That's just the way it is. Well, you know what? I can respect that. All right. He seems to be acting very casual about all this, and it makes me wonder if he isn't just stalling for some reason. Maybe because he was having trouble processing the fact that we might just find this poor woman's body after all. And if we do, what then? With no map to go on here, we were going solely on archival news footage and the memory of a man who was there around the time they found Otis. His name is Jimmy Terrell. I was the county investigator from January 1st, 1975 until 1980. I was really excited and I called a friend of mine who worked for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And uh, I, I said, hey, Jerry, I said, Jerry, I got a job. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Winder as an investigator. Uh, and he said, why the hell are you doing that? They kill people over there. And I, oh, well, I put a different light on it, but, but I kept the job and uh, came on over and for the next five years worked a lot with uh, the federal agency, the FBI was in and out, ATF, GBI, uh, interesting five years. I asked Jimmy why he was trying to help Stoney find the missing woman. It will bring some closure to, to a couple of cases, uh, to some people. Uh, I, I think missing persons are always, cold cases are always good to solve and, and you bring some closure and, and you know, there's nobody to prosecute, that's okay. We, we still solve a case if, if we find uh, the missing person and, and there's some closure in that uh, and, and try to bring an error to an end. Sometimes it's all about closure. We walked up and down the riverbank in the hot midday sun while Tracy ran with Draco ahead of us. As we began to approach a bridge that crossed over the Mulberry River, Draco hit on something. Her other dog, Chance, was brought out and immediately sat on the same spot Draco had. I could not believe it. The reality began to set in that we might have just located three different victims of Billy Burt in one day. And this last point of interest, according to audio Stoney has of his father, might be the location where Davis's mistress was buried. We immediately notified the Hall County Sheriff's Department investigator who was assigned to be with us on this day that the dogs had alerted us to something, just as we had done at the Jackson Farm with Barrow County law officials. Crime scene investigator Cheryl McCollum took soil samples we collected from each of the three locations to send for forensic analysis at the state crime lab. It was nothing more we could do today without a warrant. And now, we wait. And wait. Weeks would go by, and still, no word on the soil samples that were taken. No warrant had been issued, or even pursued by authorities. We were at a complete standstill. We were anxious. Even Tracy, who does this for a living, was so intrigued by this story, she called several times to check in and see if we made any progress. She was certain that given the situation, we would find something. After all, it's not often you have a map to go by. 
And during one of these calls, she mentioned we might be able to get results much faster if we sent soil samples to an independent lab she regularly uses located in Canada. The only problem with that, we would need new samples. And the collection process must be strictly adhered to in order to avoid contamination. I called the lab to find out exactly what it was we needed to do. I am Stephen Petro. I'm the technical manager of uh, Lakehead University Paleo DNA Laboratory. Our laboratory specializes in getting DNA from ancient and degraded material, but we also work with uh, modern material as well. Uh, we specialize in- Stephen goes on to tell me that his lab has collected human DNA from bone fragments dating back hundreds of thousands of years. We were looking at samples less than 50 years old. I called Tracy Sargent and asked if she would be willing to bring Chance and Draco back out to the three sites to properly collect new samples and run the dogs through the grounds again to see if they came up with the same results. She agreed, and on the day we all met up, we finally had our first stroke of luck. The weather was perfect for the dogs. At 7 a.m., it was cool and raining lightly which allowed for the scent to really come out of the soil and vegetation, giving the dogs a better chance of narrowing down their search field. No matter how many times we check an area, we always start the dogs in what we call a clean negative area. We don't take them to the hot area. We let them take us to the hot area. In this case, we actually brought them in a completely different direction, a different environment. They didn't even know that they were in the same place. We knew that. Tracy got her samples, and we headed back to the site where Otis Reedling had been found. And yet again, the dogs sat at the exact same spot they had before, which we think could be where Davis's mistress was buried. Tracy took a sample there, too. We packed up for the day and headed out. And again, we would have to wait, because the rest was out of our hands at this point. By now, the first several episodes of this podcast had been released, and that's when I got a very strange message on Instagram, of all places. It was from a family member of the Flemings. We started communicating through direct messages, and I was told that for the first time since the murder and Billy Burt's death penalty for it, there were a few family members that started to think that maybe there was more to this story than they were told. Maybe Billy Burt really wasn't guilty of this murder. Either way, they were open to talking about it with me and Stoney. I made the two and a half hour drive to a small town called Evans, just outside of Augusta, on a Sunday morning to meet with Cindy Sylvie and her two sisters, Wanda and Sonia. The Flemings were their great aunt and uncle. The Southern hospitality, once again, was on full display as they welcomed me in to a full spread of meats and cheeses, and the women were already hard at work on their mimosas. And I'm not a drinker, but... <laughs> All three women were a bit nervous to meet Stony, which is understandable. This is something their family never would have thought might happen, welcoming a Bert, of all people, into their home. 
My stomach is in knots. Yeah. Because again, if, if anybody had ever told me I would meet him or anybody with the last name Bert, spelled B-I-R-T, I would have I would have said, You're crazy. No. No, I wouldn't do that. Cindy paints a picture of what life was like for them in the early 70s before all this happened. Growing up, my sisters and I and all of my cousins, we would go to church every Sunday here in Augusta, and then we would go straight to Wren's after church every Sunday. And we would go and play with our cousins, and we did that every Sunday our whole life. Cindy begins to tell me what she remembers about the murder of her great aunt and uncle, and the cheerful vibe in the room quickly dissipates. One day in December of 1973, um, we get news that there's been this horrific murder of my mother's aunt and uncle. It was my great aunt and uncle. And um, it was shocking. It was unbelievable. It was so surreal. It was um, traumatic. Um, I can't even tell you. I mean, it scared us to death. We didn't know who had done it at the time because the people who had done it weren't caught. The murder affected the entire family, but the children seemed to take it especially hard. We were terrified. I can remember I was 13 years old, and I had to start sleeping with my parents again. I would go curl up on the end of their bed at 13. Um, I would have died if my friends had known I did that. But every closet in my house, I kept thinking when somebody opened the closet, a man was going to come out. I didn't know who this man was, what he was going to look like, but... I was scared to death. We didn't know who had done this horrible thing, and um, it was awful. To me, this was an immediate reminder that when someone is murdered like this, it's the family who's left to carry the weight of the crime. Gosh, who would have ever? I mean, there's never been a crime like that before or since in, in Ringe, Georgia. I mean, like, just doesn't happen. I mean, the whole town had to be terrified. But it was a double funeral, and that was, I'll never forget it. I mean, we remember it. We remember going to the funeral home. There were, you know, two caskets, only double funeral I've ever been to. Um, and it, I mean, it was just, it was an open casket, and it was very, I mean, it's etched in my mind, you know, probably my sisters too, and my cousins. I mean, we'll never forget it. It was a huge funeral. Um, I think everybody in the town and probably every town around, do y'all remember how big it was? I mean, people were outside. Nobody could, they couldn't even all get in the church. Probably the biggest funeral Renz has ever had because they were just good people. They didn't, they never did hurt anybody, do anything. They were, you know, fine upstanding citizens. They were born and raised there, been there forever. Everybody knew them. I was really curious to find out how the Fleming family felt about the Burt family as a whole. Clearly, you don't ever get over something like this. It just gets easier with time. But I can only imagine that they must harbor deep feelings of hatred or resentment for the Burts. I don't know if we hated them. I I, I keep going back to terror. I was scared to death of them. Um, I just always thought of this monster. <laughs> Because Billy Sunday Burt was the name that always they would set first. I don't know why, but it was like it was 
he was the ringleader, maybe, I don't know. So I just pictured this monster of a man. I asked why Cindy and her family decided to reach out to me to talk about this and why they were finally willing to meet Stoney. I stumbled upon your podcast and I heard the first episode and it was like, oh my gosh. I was hooked in the beginning when I heard the word coat hanger um, because that had been one of the ways they used to murder the Flemings. They used coat hangers um, that they wrapped around their necks. I had heard of Stoney before. I had um, heard that he was holding to the fact that his dad did not do that particular murder, that he did all the other things, but he didn't do that. And, but I, you know, pretty much took that with a grain of salt. This is a man who loves his dad, of course, you know. Um, I just didn't get all that into it. But when I heard the podcast, it was like, okay, maybe there's something to this. That was the first time in my life that I, I even, you know, had a shred of doubt that maybe he was not involved in it. Cindy came to question this on her own. She's an intelligent woman, a psychologist, in fact. She even did her own research into the murder when she was in college. I'm seeing patterns. I'm seeing things that um, could possibly <laughs> say that he wasn't there. I don't know, and I don't know if we'll ever know. Cindy poured through the crime scene evidence while doing her research. She pulled out the grainy photocopies to show me. She interviewed GBI agent Bob Ingram, and she even wrote to Billy Bird in prison, but never got a reply. But still, she didn't have the answers she was searching for. We know he was in the town. That was established. She admitted he was in the town. So if if that's what they're going on, and it seems to me that's pretty much what they're going on, that he was seen in the town, that we already knew he was in the town, and he admitted he was in the town. The pattern I'm seeing is that when Billy... Bert didn't think it was smart to do a murder, he would not do it. But there's all this backstory like that we had no clue of. Like when I was doing my research, and I, I would never come across that. All The whole thing with Jim West, where he had this vendetta, you know, he, he didn't like being made to look like a fool, you know, that he felt like he looked, Billy was making him look like a fool. Um, there was that. And then the whole Billy Wayne Davis, I had no idea that he, you know, that there was some started to be some bad blood and um, then he goes and turns on him and you know says it was him that he was there and all of this um, and the fact that Billy Burt you know in court he said you know yeah me and him we did we did some bad stuff we did all these things but I didn't do this I just don't understand why he would not admit to this all that information, by the way, about how Jim West and Sheriff Lee used Davis's wife to get him to make a deal, as well as how Davis had multiple murder charges dropped in exchange for his testimony against Burt, came directly from Sheriff Lee. Lee told this not only to Billy, but to Stoney as well. This might be Stoney's only chance to present his case to Cindy and her extended family. When he arrives... Cindy and her sisters again begin to get nervous and have another drink while I meet Stoney out front. I'll uh, go out and flag him down. And uh, we'll be back in in just a minute. 
Immediately, I can tell he is terrified. His whole body is practically convulsing. He's so nervous. I stay awake most of the night. I couldn't sleep. I just, I just, I don't know. It's nervous. As we make our way to the front door, Stoney hesitates and finds any excuse to cause a delay, forgetting his wallet in the car, checking each car door individually to make sure it's locked, smoking yet another cigarette. I don't think I've seen you this nervous, Stoney. Sean, can't explain it. No, I don't think you need to. I don't to. have the words. Tell you the truth, I won't cry before I walk in. They're all very friendly, and there's no, she, she's got no ill will. Give me a minute. Yeah, okay. I give Stoney a minute to himself before we walk into Cindy's house. He struggles to work up the courage to knock on the door. Ladies. We've got a guest here for you. Hello. Hello. How y'all doing? Oh my God. Come on in. Y'all mind keep my grass going, ma'am. I don't like uh, ladies. That's it. Wrong man with Stoney brought a case of whiskey and brandy as a gift. And after everyone gets acquainted over a drink, he begins to tell his father's side of the events surrounding the Fleming murder. But before he does this, he tells Cindy and her sisters that he doesn't want the Fleming's son, Hugh, who found his parents the morning after the murder, to know of their conversation. He's elderly now, and Stoney doesn't want to cause the man to go through the emotional trauma of this all over again. I'm not here to, by no means, ever bring this up to Hugh. No matter what y'all think, I don't want him to have a religion. Right. So I want to ask you, even if you... I walk out here and you know 100% my dad didn't do it. I'm going to ask you not to tell him and just let him have peace. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. What's important to me is that my grandkids know it. Damn the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I get it. We did. Over the next several hours, he pulls files, newspaper articles, letters, and video interviews of his father out of several tightly packed suitcases he brought along. Ask me anything, ma'am, and I'll just tell you what, what I know, tell you what I think. What I'll tell you so far, what I know. Stoney paints a picture of what he believes really happened that night. So he was, he did the Heyman house with Charlie, Charlie Reed. Reed. And then they left town? No, they went straight to the other two houses. With him. He recounts conversations he had with his father in later years while he was on death row and explains that even Sheriff Lee didn't necessarily believe Bert committed the murder, but went along with it for the greater good. They had to keep Bert in prison at all costs. And that's something that even Billy Bird understood. After hours of talking, it seemed the women had come to their own conclusions. You know, before I heard the podcast, I only pictured your dad. I just thought he was a monster. He was, he was. But when I listened to the podcast, it made me see the human side of him. He was a father. You know, the stories you tell about him, it made you a real person to me. I don't feel that way anymore. Feel what way? I don't feel like he was a monster. But he was. I mean, I don't feel like, I have doubt that he killed my aunt and uncle. The reality here is that we might never know what really happened that night. 
But the important thing to Stoney is not to prove this in a court of law. It wouldn't change anything. It's to have the Fleming family hear his father's side of the story and make up their own minds. When I think about it, I mean, it, it's only because I've, I've heard him. I feel like I sort of know him from his stories. And um, it's like, he didn't do it, you know. Um, nobody's really mad at him or anything. I love Jesus and he forgives me every day for, you know, all of everything I do every single day, you know. So what am I if I, if I can't forgive? Or, you know, I just feel like we have to give each other some grace sometimes. And it, it sounds like he needs some grace right now. It's not just him. It's not just Stoney's story, you know. There are people and things that back up what he's saying. So, but we had never, you know, gotten that close to the other side either. This is a lot for all of these people to take in. And I felt like at some point I shouldn't be there with a recorder. This was about more than a podcast. It was real life. Stoney stayed for several more hours. He called me when he left and it was really heartwarming to hear the joy in his voice. He said that they all hugged as if they were old friends. What a difference a day makes, huh? But for now, it would seem that the weight that Stoney had been carrying on his shoulders all these years might finally have been lifted. His obsessive quest to clear his father's name of the Fleming murders might be a thing of the past. But a ghost from that very same past might have the final word. What brought all this up has been quiet for years, and now all of a sudden it's everybody saying I did this, I did that, and Bert wasn't guilty. I, I wasn't comparable to that, but and I don't know. To me, what should happen to it should have happened years ago. Get everything out and then be through with it. But it just keeps popping up, popping up, popping up. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at In the Red Clay Podcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.